Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by the HOCL Association, the first trade association for the hypochlorous acid industry. Hypochlorous acid, or HOCL for short, is the chemical our white blood cells produce to fight infection, now available in shelf-stable form for the first time in human history. Up to 100 times stronger than bleach, yet safe enough to drink, HOCL is the most important chemical you've never heard of. Combining the strength of chlorine with the safety and versatility of water, HOCL will revolutionize skincare, wound care, pet care, disinfection, and usher in a new era of clean agriculture. It even works as a seed-to-sale additive for cannabis with dozens of incredible benefits. Learn more at hocla.org. My guest today is Dr. Gurpreet Pada. Dr. Pada is a medical physician, board certified in anesthesiology, addiction, and interventional pain. For over 20 years, he's practiced in the urban core, helping his patients regain their metabolic health. In addition to his expertise in the medical field, he is a serial entrepreneur. He's personally owned and operated restaurants, microbreweries, entertainment venues. He's purchased, developed, and managed a variety of real estate assets, ranging from multifamily to industrial. Welcome to the show, Dr. G. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to know what drove you into medical school in the first place. It was curiosity. It was inquisitiveness about how things worked. I love science, and I've always been fascinated with with science and trying to understand how things work. And so that's, that curiosity is then what led you not just to be satisfied with being a doctor, but then to go into entrepreneurship as well? So I actually started my life as an entrepreneur first. I was born in India. We moved to Saint, to basically St. Louis City when I was probably like nine. And so I was the only kid with a turban in, that the city had ever seen at that time. And we lived in the hood. We lived in the urban core, which is why I practice in the urban core now, because it's a give back to the roots where I grew up. And so I had to figure out how to make money because I'm a little kid and there's things that I want as a little kid. And your parents don't necessarily understand that you want something just because it's available for sale. And it's interesting because when I grew up in India till the age of about nine, India was at that time undergoing a communist propaganda revolution. They were becoming more and more communist and they were becoming more and more socialist at that time. So the concept of having individual freedoms and the concept of having the money to buy things and just being able to go to the store uh, and buy the things that you wanted just didn't exist. Everything, it was not a demand driven system. It was a supply system. So the government 
told the manufacturers what they were going to make. They made those things, and sometimes there was a disconnect between manufacturing and the demand, and so people couldn't get what they wanted. And so it it was a, a supply-driven, top-down approach of communism that India was flirting with at the time. I came to the U.S., and oh my God, everything was here. And being a little kid, I wanted to participate in that. So I had to figure out and hustle how to make money. And so I sold door-to-door -door greeting cards when I was nine. And it was a challenge because one, I couldn't speak English very well. And two, I didn't understand that just because I sold somebody greeting cards in October or you know September for Christmas, that they would still be there when it was time for them to pick up the greeting cards or for me to deliver it to them. And I was in the core, I was in the urban core and jumped out on rent and weren't even there when I dropped off their greeting cards. And that's when I had to collect their money is after I dropped them off. So I would be stuck with boxes and boxes of greeting cards that had been personalized to the names of people who were no longer there and I couldn't really resell them. Wow, that's quite the start. <laughs> so it was, it, was, uh, it was School of Hard Knocks. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's amazing. So that's where I started my entrepreneurial journey. But then Eventually, I got more and more intrigued by bigger and bigger things and started to realize that I had some skills at mechanical stuff. I love taking things apart and breaking them. And sometimes I could figure out how to put them back together again. And so I started doing that with lawnmowers and eventually was starting to fix lawnmowers. And then I had people saying, would you just cut my grass for me instead? And then I started doing landscaping and then I started building sheds and then started repairing roofs. And before I knew it, I had hired on three or four people and they were doing the work and I was supervising them. And by now I was probably 15 and I was in high school and I couldn't drive, but my workers all could. And they were all in their thirties and I was 15 supervising them. So I would take <laughs> their, I would take their phone calls in the uh, cafeteria during lunch to figure out what they were doing. And they would call me and then they would pick me up at the end of school and we'd go to job site and I, that's how I learned accounting. So I did all that before I went to medical school, but it's, I went to medical school when I was 17 and I went to a six year med program in uh, Kansas city. And so I continued my entrepreneurial ventures there, learning about arbitrage and learn, learning about auctions and learning about buying and selling a real estate. Uh, and that's how I got through medical school. I bought and sold real estate as a way to get through medical. Wow. And so it, it just continued on from there. And I managed through the through learning through hard knocks. It's, I think that's the thing you got to learn from mistakes. Hopefully, you don't make them all yourself. Indeed. So, what drove you into anesthesiology? I loved. I was actually in in surgery first, and I loved the mechanical aspect and the stimulation and the adrenaline from doing trauma at Cook County in Chicago, and I loved it. What I didn't love was that we had a nursing strike the year I was uh, starting my trauma surgery there. And the nursing strike kept me in the, it kept me inside the uh, hospital for almost six months because the Filipino nurses who were the predominant workforce for nursing there had gone on strike. And so as the junior resident, I got stuck doing their duty and my duty. And so I couldn't leave and I was already on every other night call. So by the time I would get done, it was too late to go. Thank God I didn't have any pets or animals or family uh, there. And I just lived there at the hospital. But at the end of six months, when I finally got out, 
and went to my car, homeless people had moved into it and they had broken out the windows. They'd taken all of my cassette tapes at the time, which is what I had. And they, there was nothing left. The only thing I, I could get out of that car at the end, uh, I think was my, my handbrake. That was the only thing that I ended up salvaging from that car. Everything else was destroyed. My handbrake, my shift gear, gear shift, everything else was oh, gone. Wow. So you like legit so, did not leave. <laughs> no, I didn't. And, and so at the end of it, I decided maybe I should do something that doesn't require me to be here 24 seven and has a little bit better lifestyle. So I picked anesthesia because I knew a lot of the anesthesia docs and I loved pharmacology. And I had done a bunch of research into toxicology before, and I didn't think it would be too much of a variation from there. So I went into that. I really enjoyed it, but then I didn't find it as stimulating as I was hoping. I love the pharmacology, but it didn't give me the mechanical skills that I was missing from my surgical days. So I ended up going into interventional pain, which is a combination of procedures and pharmacology and doing things mechanically, as well as thinking about them, doing things to reprogram the central nervous system, doing things like stimulators and pumps and implants and cutting out discs and moving nerves around, doing electrical stuff, doing that kind of mechanical stuff. And so I can, I went down that road and that's how I ended up becoming an interventional pain doc, jumping from surgery to anesthesia to interventional pain. And so what did you love most about practicing medicine? Um, I still practice medicine every day. I love the ability to interact with human beings that have complex problems that have not been figured out. So I love puzzles. And so I spend my whole day, every single day, meeting new patients or patients that I've already started treating and trying to figure out the puzzle of what's causing their symptom. And I have, for me, it's, it's that, it's that inquisitiveness and being able to come up with a solution and test my hypothesis and figure out what's causing somebody's symptom that has not been figured out. And so that's led me further down a path where part of my part of my thoughts are that a lot of patients with severe chronic pain and chronic disease have another commonality because I also ended up specializing in addiction and from there I jumped into looking at metabolism and metabolic health and my where I am now is a, when I look at the situation I say the vast majority of patients have are metabolically unhealthy if we fix that then we can start unraveling their diabetes and their hypertension we can start unla- unraveling their obesity, and then we can unravel their severe pain. We can unravel the fact that they've, that they've suffered a stroke or they've had, had some major injury to their neck or their back and start unwinding some of those things. And if you don't fix the metab- metabolism first, you can't fix the other stuff at all. Mm. Fascinating. So how can people better take control of their health, given all these various things that we have to deal with in this country? So right now, only about 12.2% of the U.S. population is metabolically healthy. This started shifting in the late 70s, 1979, with the uh, dietary guidelines that came out, which pushed the concept of low fat. And Ansel Keys was one of the was one of the architects of this low fat movement, and he pushed the use of vegetable oil and pushed low fat as the healthy alternative. When you push low fat, something else, some other macro takes that space. The macro that takes that space 
is basically sugar. It's carbohydrates. And because they pushed vegetable oil, which is an omega-6, and they push sugar at the same time, that's what triggered our insulin resistance and pre-diabetes epidemic, which then turned into diabetes. And that's why very few people are healthy. So to fix that, what we do is we get our patients off of vegetable oil, which is an easy substitution because they people like butter. We get them onto olive oil. We get them onto eating real food with real saturated fat from real sources rather than vegetable oil. And then we get them off of their refined sugar. That in combination with a few other tricks that we've got along the way, make a huge difference for patients. And so we're able to, in the course of a year or so, return most people to their ideal body weight. And we can measure the results of what happens with their omega levels, what happens with their C-reactive protein, what happens to their sedimentation rate. We can measure those things and show restoration. Yeah, it's really amazing. I think at this point, most people like pretty much get that sugar, especially refined sugars, uh, added sugars are not great for you. But at the same time, when things are overly sweet, you can consume too much and just naturally not want more to a certain extent. It's probably already unhealthy. But yeah, I think seed oils and vegetable oils are probably the most insidious thing that is permeates our culture entirely. It's basically in probably 90% of the products that are in the interior of a grocery store, like any cracker anyone eats or any chips or any pretzels, anything like that. It almost all has, you know, canola oil, rapeseed oil, like any of the terrible, terrible vegetable and seed oils. And it's just, it just feeds that food addiction and you just always want more. And then when you don't have saturated fat, when you don't have healthy fats, like you're never satisfied. So you're just going to continue to eat more and more. And it seems like that is so destructive to our country and people don't really even understand that's going on or when you try and tell people that vegetable oil is bad they just give you this look like what are you talking about it's from vegetables <laughs> sorry <laughs> don't know what to yeah. tell you so vegetable oil and this is a marketing thing it's like a marketing statement like breakfast is the best meal of the day it's only the best meal of the day for the cereal company that makes you eat breakfast and your insulin resistance is very unusual in the morning and a carbohydrate load in the morning preferentially deposits carbohydrates into your fat cells as opposed to metabolizing them. Whereas a small carbohydrate load in the evening does not do that. So if you start the day off in the morning with a sugar load, which is what a lot of people do, and then they proceed to eat six, seven meals a day, it, it sets them off wrong in the beginning. The other thing people don't realize is that omega-6 fatty acids, which is vegetable oil, are hyper-inflammatory to the brain. They cause neuroinflammation. And the thing is that the human palate does not taste oxidized vegetable oil as something that's disgusting. And so most of the time, if something goes rancid, our tongue immediately tells us that you shouldn't eat that. Well, what's interesting is oxidized linoleic acid, oxidized vegetable oil, actually tastes good to the human palate. And so we preferentially look for that. And so you get oxidation of vegetable oil just by exposing it to fluorescent light. And if you notice, most of the vegetable oil containers in the grocery store are in clear plastic bottles sitting under fluorescent lights. It's rapidly oxidized. And most physicians don't measure something called OXLDL, which is oxidized LDL. And it's the oxidized LDL component that causes the heart disease, not just the LDL. It's the LDLP 
and the oxidized LDL that's associated with heart disease, not LDLC, which is what we typically measure. If you got in front of an omega-3 fatty acid that was oxidized, that was rancid, you couldn't be in the same room with it because it smells like dead fish. It smells like an STD clinic. And it is one of the most disgusting things you've ever smelled. And so if you've ever smelled dead fish, that's oxidized omega-3, which is healthy for you. And if you oxidize omega-6, you can't even smell it. it. It actually smells, and if you taste it, it tastes, and so that's the issue. Our brains are tricked into consuming it. That's fascinating. Yeah, and I mean, it just has, has allowed one of the greatest food psyops that's gone on for the last 40, 50 years now. It's absolutely incredible. Yep. The other issue is that fructose, is high fructose corn syrup, we normally think of that as 55% fructose, 45% glucose into if you get high fructose corn syrup, it's supposed to be 55, 45. But if you measure the fructose in the sugar sweetened beverages, it's actually 60. And they're spending extra money to make it higher because they know that the fructose that goes to the brain is releases more dopamine, which is a stimulatory, a stimulatory neurotransmitter that it's the same neurotransmitter that we use in addiction. And so the higher your fructose concentration, the more stimulation there is for addictive behavior. And they're purposely doing that in sugar-sweetened beverages to get that fructose what much higher than it's supposed to, and it's not regulated. But you combine the two, add fructose and, and, and vegetable oil together, you have a deadly combination for the public. If you were running USDA for a day, or if you were president for a day, what kinds of things would you immediately change to create systemic change that would help people's health writ large? I think and this would be controversial, obviously, but my suspicion is that the subsidization that we've created in food encourages processed food manufacturing. And to make those things more shelf stable, they add vegetable oil to them. So if I was to make a change, a radical change, I would want people to eat whole, real food. And I would try to avoid subsidization of food. And I would encourage people to eat local. And I would encourage people to grow their own food. I would want them to have independence and uh, a system of resilience in their food systems. I think that's missing. And I think that the farther we get away from the farm, the farther that we get away from our food supply, the worse we're going to get. I think that we need to reconnect to farming. I think we everybody should have a garden. I think everybody should re, be reconnected in some form to the source of their food, whether you keep some chickens and have some eggs, or we turn over the central part of the highways and put some goats out there and have them eat the grass instead of using petrodollars to, to cut the grass, whatever it took to reconnect us to this huge amount of space that we have that we mow. I don't think that we should be mowing grass. That's just a waste mm. of petro, patrol. Oh, totally. So that's this is a utopic uh, vision, but I, under an ideal circumstance, we would be directly connected to the food that we, we consume. This whole thing of cows producing CO2 farts, which is not true, it's CO2 from their burps because they have, they have a ruminant stomach, but they do produce CO2, but a well-managed ruminant farm actually is carbon negative. It takes up carbon. It, it, if you let the animals eat in the field and work the soil like they're supposed to, it's carbon negative, not carbon positive. And so those things are all important. And I think that eventually, hopefully someday, we, we get back to some common sense on that.
Yeah, absolutely. So what recent develops and developments in medicine have been most exciting to you? I think for me, it's the, it's the understanding of something called hormesis. That which doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. So I'll give you some examples. We know that if we put you into a hyperthermic state for a short period of time, extremely high body temperature for a short period of time, it actually creates a response in your body that helps rejuvenate your cells. We know that if you're not eating all the time and you go into intermittent fasting, it creates autophagy, which helps regenerate your cells. We know it lengthens your telomeres. So those kind of concepts are, are things that are readily available to everybody. Pushing yourself into either hot or cold situations, as long as you maintain safe, is a good thing. That's why in Nordic countries that use saunas, they have a lower cancer rate, they have a lower hypertension rate, they have a lower myocardial infarction rate because they're pushing themselves to those hormetic responses. They also have better dietary intake and they eat more fish. I think understanding those cutting edge things is the same as injecting somebody with stem cells because you're using the mesenchymal stem cell helpers, you're using the same exosomes, you're using the same concepts and your body is healing itself. I think a lot for a long time in medicine, we've made assumptions that you have to give somebody a medication to make them better. The number one cause of hypertension in the United States is probably hyperinsulinemia is related to you eating too much sugar too long. And if you get rid of your hyperinsulinemia, your hypertension goes. A lot of times we give people medications and they have untoward and unexpected side effects. And then we give another medication to treat that unexpected side effect. And we give another medication to treat that unexpected side effect. So less is sometimes much more. And I think that Medicine is starting to recognize that less is more, and that's making me excited that maybe we'll get to a point where we'll have a naturally healthy group of people, that we won't have to give them a bunch of drugs. So how do you see medicine evolving over the next decade? The biggest single cost in medicine right now, $1.5 trillion a year, is the diseases of obesity, the chronic diseases of hyperinsulinemia. We're going to bankrupt the system, so it's going to have to evolve. We're going to have to fix it. You just can't keep going down this road. The vast majority of patients that got COVID-19 that ended up with major complications, the vast majority had excessive leptins and leptins are related to fat cell mass and they had excessive insulin. They had low vitamin D. They had pre-existing chronic disease. So we need to fix those issues so that we can move forward. And if we fix those issues, then we're not going to bankrupt our, our medical system. We'll actually be able to dramatically improve it. And I think that's going to be the great equalizer in our in our communities. If we're medically healthy, then that will allow people to be wealthy. It'll allow them to increase their standard of living. And I think that those are important. Oh, definitely. So how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? I've got so many failures. There's a, a quote from uh, Mark Twain, learn from the mistakes of others. You won't have you won't live long enough to make them all yourself. I, I, I can tell you that there's, fortunately for me, as long as you have one more success than failure, you're probably okay. I've had way more success than failures, better than expected, but not as well as one would have hoped. You make all kinds of goofy mistakes. You, you end up buying buildings or projects that don't work out exactly how you like, and yet you're able to recover because you learn along the way. There's, there's all kinds of little things that we do 
that that just get they they bite you in the butt and then you learn from that mistake. I bought a building on the south side of Chicago and it was just in an absolute abysmal location. And just as fast as I was rehabbing it through the front door, the neighborhood thugs were ripping out my cabinets through the back door and running out with it, ripping out the toilet, ripping out the cabinets and ripping out the door and the windows. Just as as soon as fast as we could finish it from the front, they would rip it out from the back. And so I, I learned from that mistake and we put up fences and guard dogs and they would poison the guard dogs. So we ended up changing it out and worked with the local community and got some of the folks that lived in the homeless shelters and offered them places to stay as long as they guarded the place. And so as soon as I got the community involved and got the local people to stay for free, then a lot of that stuff disappeared. So those are the kind of things that, you know, that I, you learn from those mistakes and, and you move on. And each time you learn more and you, you avoid that mistake in the future. Definitely. So what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Um, so, and I know that I'm sure that millions of people have, have, have thought this through and I, I read constantly, but the one that I would go back to that had the biggest impact on the on my vision of humanity is a sci-fi book. It's Frank Herbert Dune. I think that that was a political science fiction book that is profound because I still look at things as complex systems. And if you poke at one space, you're going to get a result at another space and it may be unexpected. So you anticipating the outcomes is really important. So as in terms of pleasure reading, Dune is an amazing book and it's got 20 books associated with it. And so that's amazing. As in terms of financials, my earliest first favorite financial book, and I know everybody says this, is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I love that. A more recent is Richer, Wiser, Happier by, I think, Joel Green. He's amazing. He's a great author and his it, texturally, his writing is amazing. I Those are the ones that just pop off the top of my head most recently. The Dondo Investor by is really good. It's the story of immigrants, the Gujarati immigrants that came to the United States and how they succeeded and how their principles apply to the concept of stock market investment and understanding the concept of asymmetrical return. So you have a big upside and limited or no downside. It's the concept of margin of safety. I think that's really important because everything is a risk. Everything is a game. And you have to statistically figure it out and figure out where your benefits and risks are and, and how to maximize the results from those. Oh, very cool. So if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? I, it would probably be, you know, I go back to, to health first. You got to fix health and then you can get to wealth. So my, my big billboard would be stop, stop your vegetable oils or vegetable oils or poison and pick up your fork and put down your spoon. Anything that you can eat with a spoon has probably got a bunch of sugar in it. So use a fork instead and avoid all carbohydrates as best as you can, especially any refined. I'm not, I'm a bit of a fanatic when it comes to patients that are diabetic, trying to get reverse their disease. But once we've reversed their diabetes and got them healthy, then they can have some and, and modify and maintain. The community I deal with is predominantly African-American and I'm in the urban core. And so there's a distortion in the community about what is a healthy weight. Everybody thinks it's okay to be thick and thick is typically a BMI of about 35 or greater. And that's not healthy. You need to have a BMI 27 or less. And I, all the time I get patients in that, 
you know, weigh 400 pounds, 350 pounds, and they think it's okay. And the community is distorted because it's a cultural reinforcement. And I understand that, but you have to slowly modify people's behavior. So if I had a billboard, I would start with vegetable oils and I would add in the sugars to, to get people to change that behavior. It's, it won't do you any good if you don't fix that first. If you lose health, then none of the rest really matters. If you're not healthy, you can't really enjoy anything. Totally. So in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? You know, I, I didn't do this very much, but one of the things that I've started doing more and more is setting, I, I've always been somebody that solves problems at night, but it's been by happenstance. I do a lot of directed dreaming and I like have always done that. I solve a lot of problems at night but I never understood what I was doing. And so now I've gotten to the point where I actually give myself one to three tasks to figure out at night and I write it down and I expect myself to have the answer by the morning. And so I'll ask myself the thing that is bugging me or trying to figure it out tonight and see if I can come up with a solution by the morning. And I find that the mind wrestles with it in ways that I can't necessarily during the daytime. And sometimes I'll come up with a novel solution that I had not thought of directly. And it, it allows the subconscious and come up with a solution that may be a little bit more innovative or a little bit better. And sometimes I come up with the stupidest stuff that makes no sense right now, but it does later. I typically will experiment with things like I'll pose a question to myself and it may seem absurd, but how would I take a hundred kilogram payload from the surface of the earth and drop it into, into orbit? And what's the energy force required to do that? And how would I do it? And what's the optimal way to do it at the lowest cost? And how do you come up with that? And how do you not burn a bunch of petroleum or how do you not burn a bunch of uh, tetrahydrazine or how do you not burn fuel to do it per se? and come up with an electromagnetic rail that would do it for you. And, and then it poses other interesting things. When you start thinking of things like that, you realize that you, you can play with physics a little bit and get results that you didn't expect. And so that's the kind of stuff. I, I have a technology background. I used to be a hacker when I was little. And so I, I love that tech side and just experiment with it. And so sometimes I'll pose challenges to myself to figure it out overnight. And sometimes, a lot of times I'll figure it out and a lot of times I won't. But it's been useful for me with regards to how to do real estate projects. I'll think about it and then come up with the innovative solution on how to design something that makes it look appealing at a very low cost. Where something might cost somebody else $400 a square foot to design, I might be able to get it done for 120 110 105 And so come up with an innovative solution that has the same end result, but might look better. Fascinating. So what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And feel free to interpret the word investments as broadly as you like. I think if I was looking at the best investment that I ever made, it would be in the education. And it would be, there is a, there, there, I, in fact, there, there is a very specific crystallizing moment for me. So I'm, a, I'm an introvert. I don't like people and I deal with people all day long, but I don't really like them because I'm an introvert. But I also know that I have to communicate in order to get my thoughts across. And so I was very inwardly focused and a very protective of my privacy. 
but I knew that in order to communicate, I had to like project information to people and, and, and share information and understand them. So there was a course that I took and it was on public speaking and it was on how to meet people. But I did it through a particular way. I went to a broadcast location where they would teach you how to be a newscaster and they would teach you how to communicate with the camera. And they gave you lessons on how to communicate and how to have public relations. And then they let you do three takes on a camera. And then the next day you were going to go live and be judged by the whole class. So I was the last one to go because I was the most nervous and it was the end of the day. And they rolled the tape and I was horrible. I, I couldn't do it. And I screwed it up like every time, all three times. And so finally, at the end of the three takes that they gave me, which was about 15, 20 minutes of takes, I said, could I just stay here until I'm until I get comfortable with this? And let me just let's leave the tape running and I, I'll just leave the tape running and I'll just practice in front of this camera because then I can go back and re rewind the tape, run it, rewind it, run it and just see what I'm doing wrong. And I can judge myself. And they let me do that. It was very fortuitous that they were nice enough to do that for me. So I ended up staying there for six, seven, eight hours that night. I, I stayed there till past midnight. I went through probably six tapes, six and did hundreds of takes on the same thing. And by the time that I got done, I realized that my voice was not shitty. I realized that I could talk to people. And I realized that all of the things that I'd learned, I could communicate those and be able to do it in a way that was understandable and manageable. And by the next day, when we all had to do it live, I had figured it out. And that was probably that investment has say, say, done more for me than anything else. Because the next investment from that was I learned how to be a better negotiator that I think negotiation is an alpha. The next alpha skill after that is being able to convince other people to co-invest with you. I think that's an amazing alpha skill. So those are the kind of skills that I think have made a big difference in my life. Being able to meet people, being able to negotiate and being able to connect to people so that they'll co-invest with me, that they'll understand where I'm going and why I'm going. Definitely. So what advice would you give to a smart, driven college or high school graduate about to enter the real world? And is there any advice they should ignore? Don't worry about what education you've already gotten. It doesn't really matter. What matters is the practical application of that education. See, the thing is, the degree just shows that you managed to make it through school, but the degree doesn't show that you actually have any skills and the skills are learned in real life. A degree doesn't mean anything uh, unless you obviously need a degree to practice medicine or law or you need a certification. But even people that practice medicine and law, their real skills are their people skills. And those are something that we don't teach people. And so those are the skills that you have to hone, the ability to really connect, deeply connect, deeply understand. I think that's a critical thing that you got to do. And then obviously, edu continuously educate, continuously learn, figure out what you're inquisitive about and chase after it. Even though it may seem absurd right now, it may turn into something later for you. But th those are the kind of things that I would tell people. Oh, that's some, some great advice, great advice I'd, I'd say. say. So in the last, so in the five, last years, five years, what have you what have become you better, better at saying, better at saying no, to? no to? I've become I've better, better at saying no to a lot of things. 
I that's my go-to first. I have to have a compelling reason to say yes. So that's the, one of the things that I've really gotten good at. Because I used to, people would present ideas to me and I go, all right, yeah, let's try that. And I don't do that anymore. And now it's like, all right, does this fit my circle of competence? Is this something that I'm really damn good at better than anybody else? Or can I become really good at it better than anybody else? And so if, if it hits that circle of competence and it's something that I really want to do, then I'll do it. Otherwise, there are a lot of people that are more talented that can do things. And so the ability to say no is, is fundamental to, to moving forward. If you can't say no, you're not really moving forward. You're just agreeing, but that's not going to get you. Definitely. So how have you found mentors and advisors throughout your career? Some people I've taken courses from them and I've spent, <laughs> I probably spent a good three quarters of a million dollars educating myself on different fields. I always, I, Benjamin Hardy co-authored a book and I, Dan Sullivan is the main author. Ask, it's who, not how. Don't figure out how to do something if you don't, if you're not really good at it already. Figure out who's the best at it and get them to help you figure it out. So a lot of times, like when I did real estate, right now I'm learning the field of buying and selling farmland. I'm really good at buying and selling apartment buildings. I'm really good at buying and selling industrial property. I'm really good at buying and selling commercial strip centers. But now I'm learning how to buy and sell land. So I am using a guy named uh, Mark. He's with the Land Geek. And so I'm using, I bought his course and then I'm actually doing one-on-one -on -one training with them because they're amazing. There's a, another, there's a lot of people that, that I've used as mentors that I've paid for. And there's a lot of people that have become mentors just because they're nearby. Or for example, my patients have mentored me through a lot of stuff because you, you learn from your patients, you learn from the things that they ask you, and then you're able to provide them the answer. And then they test your theory and they find radical ways to screw up your theory and you have to go back and relearn. And then you test it again and they find radical ways to screw up your theory and eventually you get it right. And that's why, you know, it, it took a long time to get our diabetes protocol reversal to the point where it was absorbable for the community that I was serving. Because never in my wildest dream would I think that people thought that drinking three glasses of juice in the morning was healthy and they wouldn't report it to me because they thought well, that's just juice. It's not food or having a, a diet soda was something that you don't have to talk about because it doesn't have a calorie in it. You know, it's a, there's little errors that, that you find in the happenstance of, of dealing with people that will mentor you that you, that were unexpected mentors for you. I totally agree. So this has been an absolutely fascinating and enlightening conversation, Dr. G. And so our time is just about up, but that leads me to my final question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? There's so many things. Um, I think I would tell you that it's the patients when they genuinely, when you've helped them and they're genuinely appreciative. And that is just amazing when you can look at into their eyes and you can see that you've made a difference in their lives. To have the privilege of them allowing me to see that is amazing. To sit with them when somebody in their families died and have then having my patients been patients for years and working through that with them 
a lot the, that humanity and that connection to humanity having somebody have the trust in, in you is probably the kindest thing that anyone can ever do and i think that, that defines humanity that connection is the most important thing that you can ever gain none of the rest matters somebody can give you a million dollars and what difference does that make at the end of the day money's money but the ability to deeply connect and to be able to appreciate somebody. I think that makes all the difference. Totally. Thank you so much again for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. Sure. Absolutely. Thank you. So today's episode was brought to you by the HOCL Association. If you're an HOCL business owner or looking to join the industry, visit hocla.org to learn more and book your free consultation today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yeah.